This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. After experiencing trauma, I went to therapy and my therapist guided me through a difficult time in my life. They helped me understand what was happening and provided me with tools to cope and find my own strength and resilience. Their experience and compassion were invaluable and enabled me to rebuild my life and move forward. I strongly believe in the power of therapy to help people through difficult times. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who is trained to listen and give you helpful, unbiased advice. First, you go to their site. You can use my link, betterhelp.com resilience. You answer a few questions and BetterHelp will match you to a professional who has years of experience helping people with struggles just like yours. Let BetterHelp connect you to a therapist who can support you, all from the comfort of your own home. Visit betterhelp.com slash resilience or choose podcast, then notes on resilience during sign up and enjoy a special discount on your first month. Hello, welcome to Notes on Resilience. I'm your host, Manya Chilinski, and today's guest is Laura Olinger, a certified Gems of Excellence instructor, and she has been working to support elder communities in health and well being for more than a decade. And today we talked about being your authentic self within an organization, how you can declare that you are enough, and about neuroscience and energy. I think you're going to be fascinated with this conversation. I know I was. Hi, Laura. I'm so thrilled to be talking with you today. Hi, Manya. I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. Before we get into who are you and what do you do and why are we talking today, I wanted to find out from you, if you could have a superpower, what would that be? Oh, wow. Such a great question. Um, I would want this superpower to eliminate greed. And greed comes in so many different forms of you know money, obviously, but power, influence, talent, time, resources. I would love to have the superpower to eliminate greed and then see what happens on the planet. Wow. Okay. When you figure that out, I want a front row seat because <laughs> I want to see what happens. I want to know if what we all think is going to happen will happen. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. That's a good one. And very altruistic. Thank you for that. I think it would make all of our lives better. Yeah. In, in general. So like, you know, go big. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. So until we can get you that superpower, let's talk about who you are today and what you do. And how is it that you're in a place that we're going to be talking a little bit about resilience today? Um, well, life, I guess I'd have to say life. I've lived 60 years on the planet and um, not really always made the, the best choices for my own future. And found body of work when I was at the lowest of my lows, which was a divorce when I was mm, 36-ish with my kids were three and seven at the time. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't have a picture of what life could look like. So I found this work and have been studying it ever since. So that was 20 some years ago. And it really is the work that I'm here to do. I just have that knowing about it because Mm -hmm. it's so made a difference in my life. And I've worked with enough people that I see the difference it makes in their lives. So 
it's interesting that I went to college and studied a lot about physics and nuclear physics, and I worked at a nuclear weapons facility. Oh, and wow. All of this world of, you know, project management, intense stuff. And then I do the work of my life is really in the energy field, the okay. human energy field. So I love where science and kind of the mysticism meet. Mm-hmm. And that's the sweet spot of this work. Oh, interesting. So can you tell us what is the work you're doing now? You, you mentioned energy. So can you talk yeah, about it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so we're jumping right in. It's the work of Geotran. And I'm a certified teacher in the Gems of Excellence, which is a portion of that work. I was fortunate enough when I was at the low of my lows to find a teacher named Dorothy Espio. And she was a brilliant genius, a divine geometrist. And at that point in my life, Manya, I really had no picture for a a future. I Mm -hmm. was pretty sure it was going to be miserable or miserable, Mm -hmm. right? Like either direction I went was going to be miserable. And a friend of mine, I saw it ran into a friend of mine. She said, you should go see this other practitioner here locally. I'm in Boulder, Colorado. And, and I was like, well, I take my daughter to her. She said, no, she's doing this new work. You, You should go see her. So I did. And the crazy thing was like that science part of my brain that I relied on and studied and got my degree in. I have a bachelor's of environmental health from Purdue university. And the first two years were pre-med pre-vet and then nuclear physics and biochemistry and bionucleonics and all these different things. And I didn't even engage that part of my brain. I went to this appointment. Mm -hmm. This woman asked me questions. She made circles with her hands. She did different things. And I walked out and I felt better. And I was like, I'm going back. This is the first time something has had me feel better in a very long time. Yes. So I went back and I went back. And after about three appointments, I was like, oh, wow, the girls and I are going to be fine. Like I can begin to see a picture of a future mm-hmm. in which we're going to be fine. Wow. And it was really unprecedented. And I didn't engage my the, the other part of my brain, the science brain that wanted to know how and why and <laughs> all of that until later. And I'm so effective. I committed to being a a teacher of the work before I was even really thinking, well, how, what in the world is this and how does it work? So Mm -hmm. the closest thing in terms of of science that's out there in the world right now is, is, and and actually a lot of different people are starting to talk about the field, about the energy field. Mm -hmm. And when, when we say, what is this work, the gems of excellence, it's a digital numeric geometric language that speaks to the energy field and can make corrections to your energy field. And you kind of go, Oh, what in the world would that, right? Are you kind of sitting there going, Oh my God. I am saying what, 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 what? what? I know. I've read that paragraph, you know, going on two or 3 million times. So let me break it down to neuroscience is now, you know, the communication between the brain and every part of our body is electrical communication, right? We're used to working on our chemistry, our structure, our bones, our muscles. Mm-hmm. We're, we're used to working from nutrition and medicine. But when did everyone ever say, hey, have you had an electrical tune-up lately? Never. Right? Yeah. And yet all of those communications are electrical. Oh. It gives you kind of an, oh, well, let's 
what would that be? So if you put electricity through a wire, like a copper, the copper wires in your house, Mm -hmm. you get a field, you get an electromagnetic field around that copper wire. Okay. Right. You can detect it with those little meters and they can tell you, oh, there's wires right back there. They can detect that field. Right. Mm -hmm. We have all this wiring, wiring. Now it's not as robust as a copper wire in your Mm -hmm. house. They're a little more fragile. They're made up of Uh, nerve cells, axions, and dendrites, and all those things. And yet they are electrical. Our bodies are constantly using all those different communication highways, those electrical communication highways, and that generates a field. So we definitely have a field around us, and now it is detectable. They're detecting it now, like, oh, yeah, there's your your field. There's a start of your field. We can detect it with these little meter kind of things. Okay. Great. Okay. So neuroscience will now say... Oh, wow. It used to be that neuroscience was used to, to, to coach someone in physical performance, in athletics, right? You wanted to create muscle memory, we called it, mm-hmm. so that you can repeat that action and repeat it and repeat it and keep perfecting it and improving on it. Right. That's muscle memory, which is a function of neural pathways communicating with our muscles and our bodies, mm-hmm. okay? That's all we really did with it. 10 to 15 years ago, huge explosion in the interest in neuroscience, And they now say in neuroscience that memories, emotions, feelings, sensations, and reactions can be stored in your neural pathways. Okay. Interesting, right? Hmm. Well, how do they get to the neural pathways? What if they're in your field first? They have to be somewhere first. Yes, that's... They have to be somewhere electrical first. Right. Right? And so... What Dorothy figured out was how to communicate with that field with digital and electric digital numeric geometric language. So if you go to computer language and what operates a computer is ones and zeros, Mm -hmm. like ASCII code is ones and zeros. Right. We are often referred to as a computer. Dorothy called us a biocomputer. Mm-hmm. What if we can communicate with our own physiology, our own computer using digital numeric language as well? Wow. How would we do that? We would do that through numbers and entering those into our field in a a specific pattern. Wow. Okay. So I am fascinated by this. And also I admit a little bit confused by this. And I'm sure we could go very deep in the rabbit hole of more of the science of this and explaining right. this. But let's kind of pull back out a little bit for more okay. of a 10,000 foot view, yes. maybe. You know, the kind of work you do, what is the relationship or between that and resilience? Or yes. why is resilience something you're even thinking about? Right. Okay. So if you're driving down the street, everything's fine, mm-hmm. everything's grand. And someone, cuts you off, what happens for you? Like you have to slam on the brakes. Yeah. And everything kind of goes in, your system goes into a reaction mode. Right. And what kind of a charge is that? I don't know. (laughs) Well, it's electrical. You you, you feel that jolt. You're like, oh, we feel that electrical charge. And what is in this work is generally, so the first thing that happens is fight, flight, or freeze, right? Right. Which shut down, shuts down part of your brain. So you're, you're, no, you're working from, am I going to run? Am I going to fight? Mm-hmm. 
Am I going to freeze right in place? Mm-hmm. And now they say fawn, right? Yeah. Um, and the thinking, logistical, strategic thinking part of your brain kind of shuts down, right? Yes. So that's one thing that happens. And my teacher, Dorothy, figured out that generally at that, at that moment, people are not feeling loving and they're not feeling forgiving mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't experience choice. Okay. So what happens, what I say is love, forgiveness, and choice fly out the window mm-hmm. and your brain somewhat shut down. Yeah. Right? How do you recover? A super resilient person would say, oh, here we go. Everything's fine. Most people aren't there or aren't there yet. Mm-hmm. So the reason I asked about love, forgiveness, and choice is, well, how do you re- reinstate? What, what Dorothy saw was that when people have stressors, any kind of stressor from, I don't like the color of your shirt to, um, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic to a significant catastrophe or trauma, um, love, forgiveness, and choice are gone. Mm-hmm. They just go. And it takes some time to recover that. She's like, how do we recover faster? Okay. Love, forgiveness, and choice. So you enter the code two, three for love, five, three for forgiveness, and six, five for choice. And that does two things. It removes the charge, the significant energetic charge from your field, the field okay. that I described, mm-hmm. and it restores the correct spin at the point where you enter it. And there's a specific point, which I'm not going to do because we're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You can't see my left leg and you can't see my <laughs> hand and all that kind of thing. So you enter in a specific geometry and a specific spin. Now it kind of takes you back to atoms and orbitals and all the spin points in orbital in, in physics. And you can cut that part out if you want. <laughs> but, um, but the trauma opens your field mm-hmm. and the correction of entering love, forgiveness and choice back into your field closes those those openings so okay. that your field then is more resilient. If you go about your life with those points open, I don't know if you've been around people who are continuously grumpy, like, well, how many traumas have they had that are keeping those points open and they don't experience love and they don't experience forgiveness and they don't experience choice because their neural pathways, their energy field is unaccustomed to having those occurring. They keep flying out the window with every experience they have. Now, once you have an experience, some, something happen, often, not always, but often, like what's already in your field will attract more of it. So if you are in a stressful relationship and, and you're stressed by it, you're often going to attract more stressful relationships. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people have a fender bender and then they'll have a little bit bigger accident. Like they'll have a repeated cycle of um, car accidents. I've worked with a lot of people who've had um, brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I had a, I, I had a concussion. Oh, I got another concussion. Well, then I had a traumatic brain injury. Like it, it, it's a progressive because what's in your field will attract more. Okay. So you close those openings, Right. You have a trauma. Wah! No love, forgiveness, and choice. It flies out the window. It flies out of your energy field. Mm-hmm. How do you regain it? Now, you know, people are like, well, do you do yoga? You get grounded. Those are all great things. I have not an issue with any of it. You meditate. Great, perfect, wonderful. All of those are really great things. This is another tool. You could right. go, oh, 
Let me get the trauma out of my field and let me close it so that I no longer feel vulnerable to that. Another one of those types of energy coming at me. Right. Right. So I have found myself become more resilient to all the different things that happen in life by using this and continuously returning my field to love, forgiveness, and choice. Okay. Interesting. Honestly, say I've never thought about it this way from the energy perspective. And it's so interesting to learn. And I want to ask you a question because what you are talking about is resilience and um, trauma and helping out the individual. So with how can I heal? How can I become more resilient? But what do you think or do you think that our systems and our institutions and our communities have a role in helping people heal from trauma or helping people become more resilient? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I would like for this work to be more available to people, for more people to know about this work. Mm-hmm. I believe that, you know, a one-on-one relationship can be complicated and a relationship in an organization is even more complicated. Mm -hmm. And often people have stress on communications from way back that create a lot more stress and tension within organizations. Mm -hmm. And so if those can be de-stressed on the individual level, we can also de-stress them on an organizational level. Oh, an organization starts to operate as as a as a being, so to speak, right? It'll have its own character or personality, it'll have its own vibe, it'll have its own um structure, um accepted ways of communication which just like the neural pathways in a body get mm-hmm. repeated and repeated and repeated. So you can actually do this type of work on an organization. And within an organization. So that's one, that's one piece of it. Mm -hmm. Another piece of it that I think is a really key that I learned through this work, and it's not necessarily the only place that you would learn it is the distinction of I am Mm -hmm. and you are. Okay. Can you, so it's a way that you can set a boundary. No, I am the way I am and you are the way you are, Mm -hmm. which In organizations, I think often we start to look for people behaving in the same patterns Mm -hmm. and not allowing to just be their authentic self so that they contribute their authentic talents, their authentic ideas in a way that's appreciated and acknowledged. So that's that's another piece of it. And then I think, Pete, we have to really um, institutionally and organizationally and and in society have to acknowledge when people have had enough. And, and this, this to me is part of resilience. I think organizations demand, they demand a lot and that's great. And where resilience goes astray is when it's too much. When the demand is more than a human being should be asked. Yes. Right. And I think that's where, you know, I was raised to be strong to be a strong woman. Mm -hmm. And I did that very well. And I was very much trained in um, performing in a work setting, in a very male dominated work setting. Okay. And I, 
did that by developing very masculine capabilities and traits, project manager, you know, don't let your feelings be shown, be a little bit hard, harden Mm -hmm. yourself. Don't ever let tears seep out of this, out of the corners of your eyes. Right. Heaven forbid. Yeah. And I was really good at it. I mean, I was really good at it. Mm -hmm. And when I look at some of the things that I encountered, then I'm like, I do not want either one of my kids to ever work in an environment that pushes them that hard, that far, and in that much of a masculine way that wasn't really my authentic self, like ever, ever. So when I look at that, I think it's really important that in organizations, we we let people choose, have choice, Mm -hmm. and we listen to their choice. I I think we can often give... um... We can say that we're listening to people or that we're giving them a choice, but not necessarily acting in that way. Right. And so, you know, just even in the the balancing of the masculine and the feminine, can a woman with an impassioned, make an impassioned plea in which she's crying and have that be okay within an organization? Mm. What if that was fine? Yeah. And, And that the tears just say, wow, I can tell this is really important to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I'm trained in a, in a exercise and fitness modality called Nia. And one of the most, the most important takeaway that I have from all of the, the different levels of training I've taken is, is that you can declare your enough. Ah, uh, yeah. And that you get to say, and what if inside an organization, there was the opportunity to say, that's enough. Now that can be enough today and I'll be back tomorrow. Right. It can be, I've had enough of my, my office being too cold. I'm going to go home now. Like it can be simple and it can be very complex. It can be, I've had enough of this position. Do you have another position to offer me? Or am I now, does that mean I'm now moving to another organization? Like, is this goodbye? But see, doing it without the stress on the individual, two, three, five, three, six, five makes a world of difference because you de-stress the different options that people have to make choices. Dorothy said that she wanted to be known as the person who gave people their choice back. (laughs) I like that. Right? So if you de-stress all the options, do we have a meeting? Let's de-stress that. Do we not have a meeting? Let's de-stress that. Do we provide this free of charge? Let's de-stress that. Do we, do we charge people a significant amount of money? Let's de-stress that. And then you can actually get to choice. Right. I like that concept of sort of declaring your enough, whether it's in the moment or it's, you know, related to your entire career. And I fear that there's such a disconnect that there are people who are willing and able to say enough, but within organizations that aren't actually supportive of that. Right. Right. So how do we get the organization supportive? I think you keep doing the work you're doing and I keep doing the work I'm doing. And we keep supporting other people who are doing good work that support people getting there. That's actually one of the reasons I was like, oh, wow, what a courageous woman doing this podcast on on notes on resilience. You see, it's going to take all of us. It's yeah. going to take all of us, and and particularly the feminine voice right now. I believe, mm-hmm. saying, you know, we've had enough of this. We've had an, we've had enough. <laughs> I said it again. <laughs> exactly. I said it again. 
Let's do things. There's that word. There's that word. That's word. There's that word. That's it's interesting to think about. Well, I want to just take a step back to the crying at work, which is, I think, can be such a flashpoint for people. I have definitely cried at work in a full on corporate button down environment. And it was mortifying. And people said things. And because it is completely inappropriate. Now, what was happening was something completely appropriate for someone to be crying. It's just somehow nobody else was. And so it's interesting to just, wouldn't it be great to be in a world where we could have our, we could bring our full messy selves, even if that meant crying, perhaps not crying all day, but crying when, when something specific happens that is, heartbreaking that it's okay that you're crying about it. Right. Right. And, and it could just be the day that it is. Exactly. It could just be the day that is. And it's a day that I'm a little weepy. I'll try to get through this meeting without crying. Or it's a day that I'm a little weepy. I might cry during this meeting and I hope that's okay with you. I still have some important things to contribute. Yes. Yes. I, you know, not that we have to spend the whole rest of our time talking about crying, but I do think it's interesting that that particular, I'm going to call it a behavior because whatever, wherever it's coming from, that can be coming from a different place emotionally, but that somehow negates what you're saying or what you're thinking or what you're trying to get across. Like having the emotion negates your power. Right. So If people could be in, I am the way I am, and you are the way you are, across the board, and you can get that from a lot of different disciplines and teachings and spiritual philosophies and so on and so forth, in the way way Dorothy taught it to us is it's it's somewhat of a boundary, like, Mm -hmm. just because you're crying doesn't mean I'm supposed to cry. Right. Or just um, just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean you have to have a bad day. Right. Because you have that strong opinion that I can actually let it open up and be there mm-hmm. and consider and kind of go, oh, I never thought of it that way without mm-hmm. it invalidating my thoughts about the issue. Right. The, the, the tears could be a punctuation mark. Mm, I like that. What if the tears were a punctuation mark that said, lean in? She has something that's really impacting her mm-hmm. or if you if you know, know the person on an on, on a, a closer level you just say oh that's a soft spot for her I'm glad she still expressed that view yes there's so many ways that it that we could in a de-stressed world of love forgiveness and choice where people have their I am you are mm-hmm. and can say this is enough so many things are possible within organizations, society, and so forth. One of the groups that I work with is actually um, a local housing for socioeconomically disadvantaged seniors. Okay. And talk about a group of people who's resilient Mm -hmm. and resilient to a fault. So what I see there is they've been forced to be so resilient. Many have been homeless and now they're living and, and the rules and they're narrow and, the documentation and the 
the things and the other people that they live in the space of and so on and so forth, that they've become resilient to the point that they don't have choice. Oh, interesting. So resilience and relying on those people to bounce back, make it work, keep going, grateful. Just just be glad that you have a, a roof over your head, right? Yeah. That choice is then violated. Wow. And it's the most resilient group I've ever seen in my life. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. What do you think is the most important action that an organization or community can take to really support people being resilient? You have to support the individual being authentically themselves, Mm -hmm. I think is, and be able to say they're enough exercise choice and state they're enough without a backlash. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that gets at what you're asking. That does. Okay. That does. I think that it's simple to say that. It is not easy to accomplish that. Right. In my experience. Right. Right. You know, I've worked in organizations a lot, starting in my own career. And while it seems like I focused on the emotions and people being able to express their emotions. That is important. When a good leader gets the group committed to an outcome, when, mm-hmm. when they all have a purpose that's outside of themselves and they're committed to it in a, in a correct mm-hmm. way, then a lot of the other stuff diminishes as well. A lot, yes. you, you know, and in that, then can the individual still say, okay, I've hit my enough. Mm -hmm. And can the individual still have choice to participate or not participate? Right. And and most times people are like so excited to get on board with something extraordinary that they're like, yeah, I'll I'll play. I'll go, you know, I'll invest myself, my time, my energy. And then in a long-term organization, especially, you have to be able to have the individuals speak up as well. Actually, the only place you get an extraordinary result is when the people can authentically contribute their talents and actions, right? So absent the stress of culture and other things that happen in an organization, you get the most extraordinary result because people can say, oh, I had this idea last night while I was chopping carrots, (laughs) Yes, you know, And, and that can be welcomed. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, Laura, this is so fascinating. I'm, I really appreciate hearing about your work and then how you are thinking about resilience, which is a little bit different than I have been thinking about it. So I appreciate learning that new perspective. Now, as we're getting ready to wrap up, I wanted to ask you about your experience at the nuclear weapons plant uh-huh. and how that ties into resilience. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in Indiana and I came to Boulder, Colorado to work in at Rocky Flats. It's a nuclear weapons plant. And I grew up, my, my mom was all an artist and all about beauty and gorgeous things. And I walked onto this nuclear weapons plant and it was concrete buildings oh, yes, and razor wire and guards with, um, 
automatic weapons hanging on them. Okay. It really required me to become resilient. Yes. Like all of those things felt like an assault to my, my existence. They really felt like an assault. And yet I had to go in every day and hand the guard with weapons and all kinds of stuff hanging on them. And they had to look and see if I was the person that my badge said I was. And, and, and I felt myself becoming more and more resilient Mm -hmm. as I acclimated to being in that environment. And then it just felt like it was normal, which is a little bit weird, right? (laughs) It was a little bit weird. And then I, I would have to say that in terms of my own resilience, I went too far. I worked to the point of breaking. Okay. And when I see how much of that was in the organization and what it required of me to be successful there, I don't Mm -hmm. want any of that for my kids. Yeah. I don't want that any for any young people really. And, um, I hope, and I, I see instances of it and I do hope that things are shifting. Yes. And I can understand that there are work environments that need to be a certain way that maybe aren't the softest or squishiest or people aren't necessarily right. You know, the most, um, I don't know, open to hearing your emotions, but I can imagine it's a quite, quite a difficult environment um, for some people to find themselves in. Mm -hmm. So I know you were young when you were um, working at that job. So What would you tell your 18-year-old self about resiliency? Yeah, I think um, the first thing that I would say is listen to your intuition. Mm -hmm. And that your intuition will always guide you correctly. Mm -hmm. And protect your intuition and protect your choice. Yeah, you have a choice in your life. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can maintain a sense of choice, and listen to your intuition, you're going to be okay. You're going to be great. I like that. I like maintaining your intuition and, and your choice. Laura, thank you so much for this conversation today. Before we say goodbye to everybody, how can our listeners reach you? Oh, um, I'm at uh, vintagemoves.co. Okay. Um, all the classes that I teach, my, my email is laura at vintagemoves.co. Great. I'd love to hear from people. I'll put that in the show notes so people will be able to get in touch with you if they want to learn more. Laura, thank you so much for this conversation. I definitely learned a lot and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. I appreciate it too. Thank you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. So if you'd like to learn more about me, Manya Chilinski, I work with organizations to help understand how to create environments where people can thrive after difficult life experiences. And I do this through talks and consulting. I'm a survivor of mass violence, and I use my experience to help leaders learn about resiliency, compassion, and trauma-sensitive leadership to build strategies to enable teams to thrive and be engaged amidst difficulty and turmoil. If this is something you want to learn more about, visit my website, www.maniachilinski.com or email me at mania at maniachilinski or stop by my social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did.
So if you'd like to learn more about me, Manya Chilinski, I work with organizations to help understand how to create environments where people can thrive after difficult life experiences. And I do this through talks and consulting. I'm a survivor of mass violence, and I use my experience to help leaders learn about resiliency, compassion, and trauma-sensitive leadership, to build strategies to enable teams to thrive and be engaged amidst difficulty and turmoil. If this is something you want to learn more about, visit my website, www.maniachilinski.com, or email me at manya at maniachilinski, or stop by my social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much. Talk soon.